Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Doctor Who, Jim, but not as we know it. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock, a podcaster, not a doctor. Tonight's episode, Melting Icebergs. Great chunks of my past. Loss is a hollow, dull feeling deep inside, isn't it? The hole it creates inside us echoes with what-ifs and longing. I remember when my mum took me to buy a jigsaw and I wanted to be all grown up and have one with small pieces, but she tried to persuade me to get one that was for younger kids, which I was, one with a cute picture of a cartoon dog. I insisted, though, and got the trickier one, which I'm not sure I ever completed, I don't think. I know, can't remember. I still remember that dog, though. I still contemplate it. I, I might have enjoyed having him in my toy box, and I felt guilty for rejecting him. Over 40 years later, the image of him in my head causes a little nauseous flutter in my tum. That that feeling of loss for something I never had in the first place. And this was just a silly jigsaw of a dog that probably didn't look anything like the memory I have of it in my addled old neurological storehouse anyway. But we're emotional creatures. And when something or someone is gone forever, our psyches find it quite hard to reconcile the fact that we have a connection with something or someone we can never again see or talk to. Friends of mine, I think, find it slightly odd that my Facebook or Twitter statuses are more likely than not to be about the death of a character actor whose heyday was in the 1960s than about, say, I know, the fuel crisis or Live at the Apollo or even pre-Hartnell Doctors. But I've always been a bit like that. I remember when the actor Gary Holton, famous for playing Wayne in Auf Wiedersehen Pet, a popular programme in the 1980s, died horribly young, early thirties, mid-shoot. It was a tragedy. He'd had an up-and-down life, but now was riding high in a popular series. And we let actors into our home via the small screen, and they were welcome, as in return they took us to places that were exciting or dramatic or funny. The newspapers gave Holton's birthday, 1952, and I remember, as I idly pondered about mortality and life, realising that he'd have been old enough to have watched all of Doctor Who first time around. It was sad that he'd died, but the stupid part of me couldn't shake how much I envied him, how lucky he was to have been able to see Marco Polo and Fury from the Deep. I was young and unhappy, you see, and without question I'd have exchanged the cataclysms of teenagehood to have been compass mentis in the 1960s in order to have soaked in the savages and the smugglers. So not only did I let the death of a man with so much still to give get hijacked by the Missing Episodes gang, I'd probably even pervert science for my archive-infused peccadilloes. In fact, someone asked me recently, 
where would you go if you could travel back in time? But then quickly added the caveat, well, apart from back to the 60s to record the missing episodes of Doctor Who, obviously, because they know full well what a narrow-minded Doctor Who fan would use. The most amazing scientific breakthrough in the history, and indeed future, of humankind to complete their collection of a disposable piece of family entertainment. So yeah, I like to think of myself as someone with perspective, but I have to be honest and say that I was probably more excited by the web of fear coming back than I would be about solving the mystery of the princes in the tower or the assassination of JFK or even, say, meeting Martin Luther King or Shakespeare or Elvis. But knock me down, step on my face and spread my name all over the place if you like. But I was really excited when the web of fear came back. And in fact... When episode four's credits rolled, I turned to the friend I was watching with and said, I think that's the best episode of Doctor Who I've ever seen. Hyperbole, perhaps. Come on. I was drinking wine and watching something hitherto thought lost forever from the first Target novel I ever read. But it was a genuine feeling of elation. Not only was I watching a missing episode, but it wasn't disappointing. Uh, More on that later. In fact, more on the web of fear later. Let's go back in time. remember where I was when I first learned that the history of Doctor Who had some whacking great holes in it. I think there'd been an allusion or a reference in one of the random Doctor Who magazines that had come into my orbit at some point prior to the Great Visitations of 1983, the Radio Times 20th anniversary special and Doctor Who, a celebration. Because whilst the small sections in both which told us which episodes were missing were depressing reading, I'm pretty sure they weren't introducing me to a new concept. Both of these 20th anniversary celebration books contained this dreadful information, but it was tucked away. In a celebration, it was on the back pages. In the Radio Times 20th anniversary special, it was in a little box just before the exciting trawl through all of the Doctor Who stories, in order. So, yeah, they were prefaced by a list of the missing. It was almost like the ultimate, here's what you could have won. The Radio Times special didn't make it easy, though. It listed the missing Hartnell episodes by their individual titles. Well, it didn't really, only those with individual titles. So it said The Roof of the World, The Singing Sands, 500 Eyes, etc. But when it got to later stories, it didn't, like Steve Coogan's swimming pool attendant in the day-to-day, go... The Savages, Episode 1. The Savages, Episode 2. The Savages... Episode... I mean, I could go on. But Doctor Who fans like to show their knowledge, so instead of breaking the Hartnell stories up by adventure, the much easier to digest Marco Polo 1-7 say, the novice fan needed to know which episode title belonged to which story, otherwise things were unclear. And so whilst it was obvious which Troutons were gone, and it was a lot of them, the exact nature of the lost Hartnells was, well, obscure although a quick perusal made it seem likely that seasons one and two were doing better than season three. Mission to the Unknown serves as a sort of anchor, so not too many episodes missing before it, quite a lot after. And with some, the Knight of Jaffa, it was pretty obvious where they came from, so I could kind of work out what was what. Horse of Destruction was unlikely to come from the Daleks' master plan, for example, and the Celestial Toy Room was definitely not going to be from the massacre. But, you know, 
would putting the Celestial Toymaker Episode 1 have killed anyone? And I know, they were showing what would have been on the film can or on the episode itself, but nonetheless, it made my head hurt. Fortunately, Peter Haining's Doctor Who A Celebration made things easier, listing the losses by story, but cross-referencing the two publications didn't actually help. For example, A Celebration said that the Daleks' master plan was entirely missing, which seemed like a particularly stinging loss. Not only did the book say it was one of the best stories ever, but it was also 12 episodes. Surely they hadn't lost them all. But that's what the book said. However, looking at the Radio Times 20th anniversary special, it listed The Nightmare Begins, which I assumed was the first episode, and it fitted with what were the likely titles of the Mythmakers episodes I knew were missing. But The Destruction of Time, which seemed to be the last episode, only took us to 10 episodes. So... Might two episodes have turned up in between the information in the celebration being sent to the printers and the Radio Times segment being put together? As I say, I wasn't a regular purchaser of Doctor Who magazine, so I had not seen the news that Escape Switch and Golden Death, episodes 5 and 10 of the Daleks' master plan, had been returned and were therefore not on the Radio Times list. All I could do was pore over those episode titles and try to make them fit by cross-referencing them with a celebration. But the printed pages didn't tally. The next best thing was to write to the BBC. Of course, to leave no room for misinterpretation, I spelt it out using all the words necessary. And then some. Doctor Who A Celebration says none of the episodes of the Daleks' master plan exist, but in Doctor Who The Radio Times special, it says all the following episodes are missing, and I listed them all. These ones, and I listed them all, are the ones I think are from the Daleks' master plan. Does this mean that they missed off two episodes in the Radio Times special? Yeah, assume someone's made a mistake, the immediate thought of any Doctor Who fan. Or that two episodes have since been found. Sometime later, I got some BBC-headed notepaper with the legend Sorry, we don't have any lists available at the moment, scribbled on it. Handwritten. Combined with a Doctor Who production office bit of bump which had exciting things like a list of stories and the agent's addresses of certain actors, etc. But nothing about missing episodes. So, whilst I was impressed that the Doctor Who production team had its own headed notepaper with a TARDIS logo on it, and that they wrote to me, yeah, I was after missing episodes, not Ian Martyr's agent's contact details. But anyway, unclear information aside, this was all I had to go on. And the extent of the losses was heartbreaking. I think I'd have taken it for granted that certain stories, because they were target novels, must still have existed. They were so familiar, and I'd read some of these books several times. The Abominable Snowmen, The Web of Fear, The Moon Base, still really thought of as Doctor Who and the Cybermen, but that's a different story. They'd been turned into novels, and my brain couldn't quite connect how that had been done if the episodes themselves had vanished. I mean, I knew about scripts and things, but it still didn't quite cohere for me. The books made these stories alive, so it seemed odd that they could also be, to all intents and purposes, dead. It's like putting you on the phone to talk to your grandmother and then telling you when you finished the conversation that she was cremated ten years ago. So I was shocked that some of those Troughton classics were gone especially those from season five, which was pretty well represented in the early target range. Yeah, stories I'd never heard of, like the Savages and the Mythmakers, that they should be in tangible dust now seemed less surprising. They'd never really existed in my head anyway. But Tomb of the Cybermen, 
the Ice Warriors. Oh, they say it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. But when you've fallen in love with something in book form and then been told the original is gone forever, well, it's like swiping right on Tinder and then turning up to the date to find a skeleton sitting opposite you at the restaurant table. It's difficult to tell how I would have felt had the gaps been elsewhere. I'm sure we'd all be missing the Space Museum and the Chase right now if they didn't exist, and we certainly would then. It's only really in recent years that anyone has dared to suggest that some of the missing episodes might be a bit rubbish. Back then, all we felt was the loss. It would have seemed a trifle improper to criticise the departed at the funeral. And of course, if it's the classics that are missing, then it's another thing for Doctor Who fans to be furious about, and there's nothing like injustice to make you feel alive. But the initial feeling for me was definitely one of loss, not anger. I read the list of the dead. I mean, come on, I was ten. That's pretty much what it was. I mean, the irony is, this was before the boom of the home video market, so I was just as unlikely to see the Dalek invasion of Earth, which resided quite happily in the BBC archives, as I was the Macra Terror, which didn't. But there was always hope. And, well, there's life, there's... Years later, actually, Doctor Who magazine talked about possible Doctor Who repeats for TV50, the BBC's celebration of 50 years of television. As it was, they didn't repeat Doctor Who at all, which kept the injustice tank full and enabled me to cruise down Grievance Highway without having to stop at Chill the Heck Out Toby Services for just one bloody minute. But for a while, it looked like they might. The Dalek Invasion of Earth print is poor quality and not for broadcast, said DWM. So we might get the chase. What? That's a new one. So... Even some of the existing episodes might be too poor quality to actually see. I'm not sure now where this suggestion originated. And of course, we had a little clip from the Dalek invasion of Earth at the beginning of The Five Doctors, and it looked okay, if a little yellow. But that one stuck for a while. I mean, when I started collecting bootlegs, I watched episodes that looked like they were made of gravy and were being viewed through a sock studded with M&Ms, so not quite transmission quality wouldn't have stopped me. Anyway, there were plenty, thank you very much, on the list of actually missing for me not to worry too much about any side issues for now. The first gap was a seven-part epic from season one, Marco Polo. The concept of individual episodes surviving from missing stories was well established with me early on, so that apparent oddness, why would one episode survive, was already out of the window. So instead the feeling was seven episodes and not one survives and also, typical isn't it, of all the stories from season one, it'd be that one. The best one, probably. Now, of course, I'd have probably felt the same had it been any other story. Oh, atypical and very long historical Marco Polo exists in its entirety, but not the first Dalek story. What a tragedy. Oh, not the Keys of Marinus, a non-Dalek nation anomaly. Surely that's a classic. Have you seen the photos? It looks amazing. What an absence. You mean you've got all of Marco Polo, seven episodes, yawn, but not the Sensorites, the little-known story with benign aliens, which is a twist on the format? Here's the no god! So even now, having recently done a deep dive into Marco Polo and absolutely loved its sensitive characterisation, lyrical dialogue, artfully weaved educational content and fine performances, 
not to mention the pictures, which make it look amazing. I do wonder if my love of Marco Polo is partially because I can't and have never been able to see it. We always want what we haven't got. Unrequited love always seems to have a heart-tugging emotionality that a consummated union does not. Those pictures, though. There are so many from Marco Polo, it seemed almost perverse that the moving ones hadn't survived. Like the Target novels, those beautiful photographs made everything seem so alive, taunting us with a promise that has never been fulfilled. It gave us its phone number, but never picked up. The other missing story from season one was the Reign of Terror, of which only episode six survived. It seemed the historicals had received special attention from those destroyers of episodes. Of course, it wasn't because they were targeted by the Destructo laser, it was just that fewer of them came back from the oblivion they had been consigned to, but I didn't know that then. This rewriting of history, several of its lines, also happened with season two, which was thankfully also largely intact, bar The Crusade, which only retained episode three, and The Time Meddler, which only had episode two. I was slightly less bothered by the crusade because it existed for me in the form of the Target novel, which was quite a tough one to read. Of course, when my reading skills improved, I discovered it was one of the very best novels. And of course, the script and acting in the crusade make it a cut above much of what surrounds it. I didn't know that. I was young and stupid. The time meddler, though, even in my juvenile idiocy, did seem to have been an important turning point for the show, and also, thanks to the presence of the meddling monk, seemed to be quite fun. But still, two stories out of nine, and a representative episode of the two that were missing, was not bad going, considering what was to come. Because after the chase, the next three seasons or so had been reduced to cinders, and it didn't look like they'd be found in Spain or anywhere else. Season three was largely gone, but gosh, and this was bad, one of the best ever stories, which I'd never seen, the Daleks' master plan, had withered under the destruction of time, whilst the worst ever story, which I'd also never seen, the gunfighters, survived. Don't shoot the archivist, but is there no justice? Nope, nor was there any trace of the much-loved Galaxy 4, or the Savages, or the Massacre, mysterious stories about which I didn't really know that much at all. The War Machines seemed to bookend this butchered run as, like the Time Meddler, only Part 2 survived, and the link between these two stories would be strengthened throughout the missing episode saga, as we will discover. Season 4, shockingly, had no complete stories at all. The Tenth Planet, in an almost poetically unjust flourish, managed to hold on to all of its episodes, bar the landmark final instalment. Are you kidding? It's like that Tony Hancock episode, The Missing Page. How will the very first Cybermen be defeated, and how will this lead to the very first regeneration of the show's very first leading man? Men, are you skinny? You what? But The Tenth Planet actually did better than any other story that season. There were just scattered instalments of The Underwater Menace, Episode 3, and The Faceless Ones, Episode 1, plus a couple, 2 and 4, of Doctor Who and the Cybermen, sorry, the Moonbase. But talking of landmarks, 
Troughton's first, The Power of the Daleks, and the biggest epic after the Daleks master plan, with that amazing-looking Dalek Emperor and the promise of a Dalek civil war, the evil of the Daleks. Nothing of either story. Oh, Ambassador of Destruction, you're really spoiling, well, my childhood. But then came season five. Now, I don't know about when or where you were brought up, but there was a time before anyone had the temerity to suggest that much of season five follows a similar template. Monster of the Month pins down disparate group of humans in confined space, the leader of whom is often unreasonably obstinate or on the verge of insanity, and the monster picks everyone off one by one before being defeated at the end by the Doctor. Now, for me, that's pretty much my ideal Doctor Who story. Partially, I think, because the first Target novel I had ever read was The Web of Fear. And so, in 1983, it seemed that season five was when Doctor Who was at its most exciting. Monsters, bases, sieging. And what was this? The whole of season five. All 40 episodes awash with Yeti, Ice Warriors and Cybermen, the monster season, the high brains called it, not to mention different shaped buildings in a state of different kinds of besiegement, was now represented by just four episodes. Four. Oh, the humanity. The Abominable Snowmen 2, The Enemy of the World 3, The Web of Fear 1, and The Wheel in Space 6. I mean, there's injustice, but this was of an apocalyptic level of unfairness. Season 6, at least, meant we had some complete Troughton stories, but how annoying that its most exciting-looking adventure, The Invasion, had a couple of niggling little instalments, 1 and 4, missing. But at least the Space Pirates had hung on to Episode 2, so that was something, and there was no story from that season of which we had no episodes at all. The list of missing Pertwee episodes in Doctor Who A Celebration took some deciphering. These were listed as existing in black and white and or colour, so this required a bit of fastidious cross-reference. Some early ones looked like they'd only survived by the skin of their teeth and in black and white. Shame about Inferno and Terror of the Autons. Oh, and the Demons only has part four in colour. That seems odd when it's such a famous one. Planet of the Daleks and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Now, they were both slightly anomalous. In colour, Planet was all bar three and Dinosaurs was all bar one. Planet, however, existed in black and white, whereas dinosaurs didn't. But I was young. I couldn't quite understand what bar meant. Is it a type of film, like two-inch tape, bar one film, or bar three format? It was only when I came back to the book after a couple of goes that I realised it meant bar as in except. Ah, I see. All of Planet of the Daleks exists in colour, bar episode three. But that's OK, because we have it all in black and white. But... Hang on. Invasion of the Dinosaurs has no episodes in black and white, so that means episode one of the story, not only does it not exist in colour, we have it all, bar one, but it doesn't exist at all. We have a missing Pertwee episode. That seems cruel and mad. They're in colour. So close you can feel their flares. I'd kind of rationalise the disposal of ancient cobwebby black and white prints, but colour programmes look like modern programmes, and 
Nobody today would be foolish enough to throw away modern stuff, would they? Of course, my reading that colour meant modern meant that I actually misunderstood the nature of the junkings. I think I thought nobody wanted black and white stuff because we didn't do black and white anymore, and those episodes did seem slightly dislocated from today's way of doing things. Plus, 20 years ago was ages, but 10, not so much. It was only much, much later that I discovered that actually loads of other programmes made in colour had been sent to the furnace in huge numbers, and that the Pertwee era missing just one episode was nothing short of a miracle. It's a good job there's not an active Dixon of Doc Green fan club, because if you thought Doctor Who fans were angry, I expect that, um, what, Dixonians, Dockers, the sisterhood of Doc Green, would be apoplectic that out of 432 episodes, a grand total of 32 episodes of Dixon of Doc Green currently remain. And that's completely unreasonable. For Doctor Who fans, though, the missing episode saga is not short of miracles. Another season 11 story, Death to the Daleks, was for some time missing the opening moments of episode 1, in which stuntman Terry Walsh gets shot by an arrow. But then a copy of the episode with that bit intact turned up somewhere else. But I still don't know why, of all the season 11 episodes to have survived as a redundant black and white print, they stopped doing them probably on Dinosaurs 3, because Australia had colour telly and didn't need monochrome versions anymore. It was the one we don't have that did. Invasion of the Dinosaurs 1 just happened to be the one that was saved by an engineer and sold. He didn't have the others, and so made the Bouffant-Wans cannon whole. A miracle. A golden age completed but not before a hoary old myth about it being destroyed by accident because it, episode one, unlike the rest of the story, was called Invasion, and so was junked when the Troughton story of the same name met its fate. Oh yeah, that did the rounds for ages, and it wasn't the only Invasion-flavoured myth to have lingered, but we'll get to that. Meanwhile, in Pertweeville, it turns out that our beloved Barry Letts was quite happy to see Invasion of the Dinosaurs junked because he wasn't especially happy with it. And yet, it largely survived. It seems you can be a respected producer within the BBC and still nobody pays attention to anything you say. But sure, lovely Buddhist Barry Letts wanted Invasion of the Dinosaurs wiped from existence. Maybe he thought it would be reborn as something better. But yes, the invasion-slash-invasion-of-the-dinosaurs hoary old myth isn't the only hoary old myth, because hoary old myths are as prevalent, hence my repetition of hoary old myth, as miracles in the missing episode saga. Nicholas Courtney foolishly, bless him, when writing a tribute to the recently departed Ian Martyr in Doctor Who magazine, used a careless phrase about the first two episodes having no sound when referring to the VHS copy of The Invasion he'd been given by a fan. Now, anyone with half a brain would think, ah, oh, well, obviously he means episodes two and three, i.e. the first two episodes on the tape, rather than jump to the ridiculous conclusion that the hitherto missing episode one was hanging around on a fan's VHS that he was handing out willy-nilly to cast members, but no one had picked up on this, and now the news of its existence was being casually revealed in the pages of Doctor Who magazine in an article about something else. 
But in Doctor Who fandom, hoary old myths are a lot more prevalent than people with half a brain when it comes to the propagation of theories that missing episodes turn up all the time. And so Courtney's touching tribute to his friend was hijacked by the rumour mill to suggest that an actor was more likely to possess something that didn't exist than he was to adopt careless phraseology when his mind was on a higher purpose. And the Invasion 1, No Sound, has been popping up regularly on hoax lists ever since, but is, at least, a good way of weeding out the nonsense. It's the Rolo Tomasi of missing episodes. And if you get that reference, well, we may as well marry now. But episodes did, and indeed had come back, without me knowing. I wasn't a regular purchaser of DWM in the early years, and so it was only when I was lent a bumper crop of back issues by a new friend that I discovered that the Celestial Toymaker 4 had come back, and the Wheel in Space 3 as well. The Time Meddler and the War Machines continued their close association, having previously both only been represented by Episode 2, now they had been returned complete. Well, or so I thought at the time. Also, in the brief hiatus between me getting a celebration and the Radio Times 20th anniversary special and getting my hands on those old Doctor Who mags, the Pertwee era had been completed and loads of episodes that only previously existed in black and white were also now in colour. I think I have vague memories of the magazine announcing the return of the first three episodes of The Reign of Terror because I think they unhelpfully printed a picture of the Crusade alongside the box out making the announcement. Maybe they were anticipating the return of the lion a couple of decades later and had crossed a time track or some such. Still, as a lover of the crusade and a meha of the reign of terror, it meant that I was able, joyous soul that I am, to greet even the best news ever, missing episodes coming back with something akin to disappointment. Oh, not those missing episodes. Toast that return with your half-empty glass, Toby. You know you want to. Back issues also revealed that actually some of the episodes that did exist used to not. I'm pretty sure that the first time DWM did a listing of what was available, the Abominable Snowmen episode 2 was missing and came back only shortly after. Wow, I thought. Imagine being alive when the Abominable Snowmen 2 was missing and then learning of the news of its return. How lucky are those people? God, no wonder envy is one of the seven deadly sins. I soon found out what it was like, though, as over the years, missing episode returns occurred and were featured in the magazine. I also got wind that there were colour copies of inferior quality of the Pertwees that only existed in black and white. I've watched in fascination, as these have been restored over the years, with better results each time, using not one, but I think about three methods of colouring. First by laying the inferior video colour onto the black and white film print whilst tidying it up. Then second, the miracle of colour recovery, in which a genius discovered the colour signal was there all the time on the black and white prints, just turned down. And then three, a mixture of those two and old-fashioned hand frame-by-frame painting, which had to be done on the episodes where there was no possibility of colour recovery, like The Mind of Evil Part 1. But I remember when the whole of the mind of evil was the one Pertwee that was definitely not and never going to be in colour by the few moments from episode six that hadn't been recorded over on one of the domestic home recordings that had survived or something. And that seemed okay. 
The mind of evil always seemed something of an anomaly anyway, and at least we could see it. And its great action sequences seemed to work on a black and white film print for some reason. And the clanking, cold prison environment's atmosphere didn't seem to be harmed too much by being rendered in monochrome. In fact, my first video copies of Terror of the Autons, Doctor Who and the Silurians and the Demons were all lovely off-air black and white tapings from Australia and they looked good, crisp. Silurians and Demons especially worked on that filmic grayscale and I still think that the slightly creakier colour courtesy of the home recordings doesn't look quite as good as the clean gothic imagery of those monochrome days. Terror of the Autons, the Doctor Who equivalent of a bag of rainbow dust, needs its colour in order to go pop. But a demon in a crypt is not a bad thing in black and white. Colour-wise, though, the change in quality between episode 3 and the colour from episode 4 that comes in at its climax shows the difference in what we're being given. And if all the episodes of the demons look like episode 4, which has always existed in colour, then maybe I'd be happier. But that's because I'm a Doctor Who fan, and even miracles come with a qualification or two. But isn't it amazing that an era I had pretty much reconciled myself to existing in a compromised form has now been almost entirely returned to something approaching full colour? And I would be hugely surprised if when Invasion of the Dinosaurs Episode 1 comes to Blu-ray, it hasn't been hand-coloured, thus giving us a full house of kaleidoscopic colour for the karate caperer. And surely only Doctor Who could produce a fandom who, and we need to remind ourselves of this, can discover a brand new technique to restore black and white episodes back to their original colour and apply that to the episodes in question. Let's just remind ourselves, a fan was watching a black and white episode and noticed the pinky red hue that seemed to dance subliminally on the image and reasoned that that was a dormant colour signal that had been turned down when the black and white copies were made and not turned off as they were supposed to be. And that's the subtle difference. I mean, that's fiendishly clever. And a pot of gold that wasn't just at the end of the rainbow, it possessed all of its colours too. To have one method of restoring lost colour to black and white episodes is one thing, but two? The oh, fandom you're showing off. But in those early days, it was enough to just live in hope that every time Doctor Who magazine popped into the newsagents, there'd be a section of Gallifrey Guardian that said something had been returned. And if such miracles did happen, then I, and this is horrific, amended my page of Doctor Who a celebration, crossing out the bar one after Invasion of the Dinosaurs, writing 5-10 next to the Dalek's master plan and putting a line through none, and crossing out 1-2-3 of the Tenth Planet and adding all. What? Why? Come on, Toby, the Tenth Planet 4 doesn't exist to this day. Yes, well... <clears throat> man who clearly doesn't even have half a brain here, fell for a hoary old myth as it was being perpetuated. One of the few Doctor Who magazines I had got hold of on some holiday or other told me the story of the colorization of the Tenth Planet. Long before this kind of thing was being done and improved on a yearly basis to the Pertwees, the magazine ran a story about a Hartnell classic being given the colour treatment. 
much like what was happening to a few silent films around the time, in a process that made Laurel and Hardy look like they'd been drinking from a well just outside Chernobyl. The clue to the nature of this story in the magazine came in the last line. The project was being given a production code based on the date that colorization was due to start. 0104-84. But you see, that kind of flew over me. And of course, it means 1st of April. April Fool's Day, 1984. It was <clears throat> a joke. And as if to prove that I had the makings of being the stand-up comedian I am now, even then, I totally missed the joke and therefore the entire point of the article, which was one big lie. Now, the magazine had form. Before my time, they'd done a piece on footage from the never-made Malcolm Hulk Hidden Planet story being found and merged with new pictures shot by the Davison production team. That, too, had been an April Fool. But I hadn't seen that at this juncture. I'd have seen through that one, I think, but I took this one, this quite detailed story about the Tenth Planet being colourised, at face value. I mean, it added to its realism by saying some footage was damaged and needed restoring, getting a couple of the old actors back in to say their dialogue again. It also said that they changed the 1984 setting for something more futuristic. God, if that was even contemplated now, the internet would go ballistic. I know 1984 has form for rewriting the past, but for Doctor Who fans, that kind of thing only happens in Room 101. And it even said that the Aztecs was the first choice, but when the Tenth Planet 4 turned up, they decided to colourise that story instead. So instead of saying it had been done to a story that already existed, they actually opted to do a double April Fool. Colourised story plus missing episode return. Mm. Now you see, the former, I think, is OK, as it would have been an interesting curio, but no great loss if it didn't happen, and you can't lose what you never had. But to pretend that the, at the time, most desired missing episode of all had been returned in order to pull off your story, that, my friends, is what we comedians call not reading the room. And that's worse than not getting the joke. So I thought the Tenth Planet 4 existed for quite a while until a fan <clears throat> enlightened me and I felt so silly. But then it wasn't the only thing I chose to believe because I eventually started to get hold of fanzines and to talk to other people at conventions and, and when you first start hearing rumours, oh, they sound so credible, especially if episodes come back. So I was thrilled when The Faceless Ones 3 and even better, Evil of the Daleks 2 were returned. More priceless Troutons. And by now, I was collecting episodes, so there was actually a chance of seeing these ones one day. But even those returns came with rumours attached. Apparently, it said on the grapevine, someone else had the Highlanders 2 and 4 and was prepared to swap them for the other two Troutons or something. That was published in some organ or other. Oh, and the Singing Sands from Marco Polo, that was definitely supposed to be out there too. Now, I've recently been told by a friend in the know that all that stemmed from when The Faceless Ones 3 was shown at a screening and it was introduced with the host joking, sadly, we haven't got our copy of The Singing Sands, so we'll have to show you this instead. Now, an obvious joke taken at face value and then perpetuated as facts. Doctor Who fans not getting the joke. Ha, <laughs> I mean, really. And look, 
I've never seen The Tenth Planet 4, or The Singing Sands, or even The Highlanders 2 and 4, which all remain resolutely lost. But I did eventually get to see The Faceless Ones 3 and Evil of the Daleks 2 when they were shown at a convention. The same convention that, I think, which opened with the announcement of the return of the Ice Warriors 1, 4, 5 and 6, which seemed like an incredible haul, and more season 5. I remember convention organiser Andrew Hare saying, Episodes 1, 4, 5 and 6, and in that split second I entertained possibilities. What could it be? Power? Fury? And then Ice Warriors came out of his mouth from nowhere. Though I did once have a dream in which the Ice Warriors came back, and remember waking up very disappointed that this delightful occurrence had only happened in the land of Nod. Nowadays I dream of drinking and smoking, and wake up delighted that only my subconscious was having a toke on those addictive substances I've put behind me. So that's one of the rare occasions that, as an older person, you can wake up happy. Anyway, haha, the Faceless Ones 3. Now that was very exciting, because I'd been disappointed by part one when I'd seen it. It seemed oddly cut and low on incident. This episode, though, was fun and action-packed, and it had the key characters of Sam Briggs and Inspector Crossland who weren't in Part 1. But the Prime Hall was definitely evil of the Daleks, too. Part of an unassailable classic, which proved to be every good as a viewing experience as it was an imagined one, even in a relatively low-key early instalment. But that scene where the Dalek confronts the Doctor, oh, chef's kiss. Now, I mentioned Faceless Ones 1. My bootleg copy of that was from the alternative print of the episode, which is slightly cut by the Australian censors. I mean, yes, the miracles are lovely, aren't they? But what are the chances of the Faceless Ones episode one surviving, not once, but twice? We have two copies from two different sources. How annoying is that? And the one I had was from Australia, I think, yes, and, and cut. In fact, thinking about it, episode one of the Faceless Ones... That's probably the last always available episode of Classic Who that I saw in full, because it wasn't until it came out on VHS, in one of the range's very last releases, that I saw the proper copy, with those few short moments absent from the Australian print, an injection here, a zapping there, but most importantly, the odd, glimpsed, gnarled alien hand here and there, back in. And do you know what? Those few snatched seconds really made the episode. Just a small handful of moments, and moments of full hands, which augmented the slow build-up with flashes of horror and creepy imagery, and suddenly a plodding scene-setter was an exercise in creeping menace. And I'll never be rude about the Faceless Ones one again. And if it looks like I am, it's probably just my alien double or something. But it's not the only episode I've experienced with bits missing. The Time Meddler and the War Machines came back, and how lovely was that? But it turns out that both of them have missing sequences. In the case of the Time Meddler, however, like the Faceless Ones, there were alternative, fuller copies of the first three episodes knocking about, and so the missing gaps could be filled, leaving only part four with a short death scene still unavailable to us to this day. The War Machines, however has had to be patched up and the big fight scene in episode 3 has been rebuilt from clips sourced from censors elsewhere but still has portions missing. Probably really exciting and well-realised bits if history tells us anything. 
but the restoration team have done a great job rebuilding it, and I actually bought the VHS when I was a poor student because I felt it my duty to buy these when they came out in order to encourage the BBC to do this kind of thing when and wherever possible. And again, it was a bit like watching it anew, even just having a few extra seconds here and there. And it emphasises just how lucky we are to have the soundtracks of every episode. Oh, yeah, and while I'm accentuating the positive, yes, there are whole episodes missing snippets, which is a shame, but nonetheless livable with in the grand scheme of things. And every negative must have an equal and opposite positive, because we also have clips from missing episodes, giving us a tantalising taste of what's in some of those instalments denied to us by fate and time and Pamela Nash. Some Doctor Who episodes themselves had clips from missing episodes, a few seconds of Fury from the Deep in the War Games, for example, but not, as it turned out, a couple of seconds from the Macra Terror in The Three Doctors. That had been the rumour. The bit of Troughton in The Three Doctors, watched by the Time Lords, had come from the Macra Terror. Maybe Graham Lehman, the actor playing the Time Lord at the control panel where the clip is played, was replaying past glories, as he was also the controller, seen on screen, in the Macra Terror. So maybe he was eavesdropping in on his former self. Maybe he'd taken the episode home with him. What? Well, I've heard stupider rumours. But no, it was all a big lie. Well, a mistake. Whatever, it was bollocks. But I remember discussing it with another fan and saying, well, maybe we could gather together existing clips and those soundtracks and the pictures that we've got and do some kind of, I don't know, reconstruction. Oh, I've never been so roundly dismissed and mocked and patronised as I, as I was when I made this suggestion to this fellow. And now I've not seen him, he's a bit older than me. And uh, I've not seen him since. But I, I think I'd quite like to see him right now as I flick through Britbox and see such things there for all to see and available not just to hardcore fans exchanging VHSs in terrible pubs in a clandestine manner, but to the general public in the comfort of their own homes as well. But to be fair... I had made my suggestion before the discovery of that huge horde of telesnaps. I mean, who could conceive of such a thing? And yet, there they are. Sixty or so single frames to give us an inkling of what sets and characters and monsters look like on screen. But they themselves were all lost, and yet, in Doctor Who's case, somehow found again. And even those the BBC didn't have or keep, Marco Polo and the Crusade, for example, had been kept elsewhere by other people. It's like everyone took home different pieces of the jigsaw, but over the years returned them piece by piece. Except, of course, for those episodes where no telesnaps were taken because producer John Wiles didn't think them necessary in season three. The season that's mostly missing. But still, if you told a young fan of my generation that such a treasure trove of visual information about lost classics would turn up, hiding in plain sight, when, and bear this in mind, most of Telesnap Taker John Curie's collection, and he took photos of loads of other different programmes, were disposed of when he died in 1969, and the majority of the work he did does not survive at all, then I'd have thought myself the luckiest boy alive. Amazing though they are, though, moving pictures give an even better clue as to how a story might have felt, and as the back page of Doctor Who A Celebration told us, Annoyingly, without going into specific detail, bar mentioning the 10th Planet 4's regeneration, clips did exist from some lost stories. 
and clips continued to turn up as a pleasant surprise on occasion. I fumed through the patronising BBC documentary Resistance is Useless, but was slightly mollified by seeing Kurt Gantry and the Spa from the Daleks' master plan, which I knew were from otherwise lost episodes. Later, when Daleks' The Early Years came out on VHS, I was gratified to see those moments now accompanied by the correct soundtrack and without a brummy anorak and condescending script to provide vexing supposed context. And it also had a couple of clips from episodes 3 and 4 of Master Plan, which I had a vague idea were around, but didn't know the details of. Both of them were gratifyingly long segments. For a story which, when I first heard about it, was totally gone, Master Plan seemed to be contriving to come back bit by bit. Power of the Daleks had a few surviving clips as well, but I'd known about a few of them. Uh, C for Computer is a title forever lodged in my mind, thanks to it being the name of the programme which did us all a favour by preserving the Dalek production line sequence. But you know, even though I hadn't known the details of some of the clips until I saw them, by the time I'd grown up, it became pretty clear that all programmes and archives had now been scoured for such segments. Heck, we even had the full, longer section of the Galaxy 4 clip, which survived thanks to its being selected for the Who's Doctor Who documentary. I'd seen the pretty hefty-seeming 30 seconds that was in the Lively Arts programme, but the full clip that ran to nearly quarter of the episode? Extraordinary. That's not a clip. That's a segment. But yeah, come on, by now, we knew where all the clips were, didn't we? Well, until one Sunday morning, the internet went crazy because an old episode of Tomorrow's World, was it, was shown on terrestrial TV with a couple of snippets from Power of the Daleks that none of us had known existed. After years and years of experts turning over every stone and accounting for every surviving morsel of the show, here was a bit nobody knew about that just popped onto national television in front of everyone without any hint of ceremony. So, you know, it's always worth checking because if a picture can tell a thousand words, then a clip can, um, something, something, something about a missing episode. <clears throat> now, I'd seen that longer Galaxy 4 segment, finally, when the BBC Ice Warriors collection had come out on VHS, accompanied by a documentary showcasing fragments, with Galaxy 4 the centrepiece due to its length. But that wasn't all. The newly found sensor clips from Australia, uncovered by doughty cool dude Aussie dentist Damien Shanahan, a windswept, tanned treasure-hunting tooth extractor saying the words macra beast on a sun-kissed beach like an Antipodean Indiana Jones on holiday, and the sun was shining in South Manchester as well as the Aussie coast on that afternoon that I loaded the missing years BHS into the ancient top loader in the grotty house in which I lived a somewhat rackety life, jaded, I think, by post-university blues and poverty, and the fact that I'd played my old VHSs to death and there was no new Doctor Who anymore. And even though the invading beam screamed, High Summer, for a few snatched seconds here and there, dark, Winter nights reigned in all their glory as snatched moments of tea-time terror lived in front of my eyes for the first time. There was the controller from the Macra Terror, looking rather more knackered than he did in the famous picture of him being grabbed by the Macra Claw, the Claw of the Beast. That's interesting. Maybe the makeup was applied after the photo shoot. Anyway, great moment. Classic image. Alive again. Oh, and some pretty hefty sequences from the smugglers. You get a real feel for Terence Damani's performance as the churchwarden, and it looks lovely and crisp on film. But, oh, this was the best of the best.
even better than the beast, was a minute-long clip from the entirely missing Fury from the Deep. John Cura had captured a key moment of Mr Quill looking terrifying in one of his telesnaps, a viscerally chilling image of a cadaverous face in an open-mouthed, silent scream. But maybe I'd thought when I saw that that it was just a, a lucky moment. Oh, but no. As Mr Oak and Mr Quill stepped forward in this clip, Dudley Simpson's potentially comic percussion suddenly becoming clunking, abstract terror, and Bill Burridge as Mr Quill's face morphing from impassive to malevolent to Oh my Christ, that's terrifying, and he's rocking forwards and backwards, and the cutting between his black-lipped open mouth and that of John Gill's Mystic Oak is just so unsettling and terrifying. My God, I'm 24, and I've never been as spooked by a moment of Doctor Who as I have until this sunny afternoon in Manchester. So, yeah, even clips could be enough to satisfy my Who hunger and make me see new things I hadn't known were there, and it renewed my zeal for someone to scour the world for those missing episodes which, oh please, might be out there somewhere in Nigeria or Zambia or even Hong Kong. And what about Tom Baker, Terror of the Zygons? There was a famous missing scene from the beginning of part one, cut because the technology wasn't good enough to create the invisible TARDIS effect. But nonetheless... It was filmed Doctor Who that we didn't have, except then somebody found the soundtrack in one place, the pictures, albeit black and white, in a different place with a different person, and then, of course, the technology was such that the effect could be improved and the black and white footage could be recoloured. So suddenly something that was missing in all sorts of different places, even when it came back not quite complete, could be assembled and presented in all its glory, as it now is on the DVD. Remarkable. But I think I thought maybe clips would be all we'd be getting. But how lucky we were to have even these, and again, what a joy that fandom had created such enterprise in others that had resulted in breakthroughs from which I benefited. And those sensor clips weren't the last, because a bit later some turned up from the Web of Fear and the Wheel in Space in New Zealand. But a non-fan invention, the internet, became a place very quickly inhabited by fans. And suddenly, those fanzine rumours seemed like rather sensible and good-intentioned imaginings or optimisms compared to some of the hoary old rubbish that started to pebble-dash cyberspace, some of it deliberately contrived to do, well, whatever it is internet tossers want whenever they do whatever it is they do. I mean, I know I'd had the wool pulled over my eyes before the internet became what it is now. I was once in an opera. I can't sing. I played a mute, which a friend said was like playing a eunuch in a porno film. But anyway, uh, one of the gentlemen in the chorus of this opera swore blind that he'd pulled a bloke in Brighton who had power of the Daleks and that they'd watched it. It seemed like an odd lie to me, and I was told it with a straight face. And frankly, it seemed to me that if a Doctor Who story was going to be sequestered anywhere, Brighton, in the home of a gay man, seemed as likely a hideaway as any. And before you say anything, some of my best friends are gay men who live in Brighton. And they are all Doctor Who fans. Uh, another guy I once knew swore he'd seen a couple of episodes of The Highlanders, but before he was a proper fan, and so he didn't know that they were missing. Now, that seemed plausible. I mean, there'd been that rumour, hadn't there, of episodes two and four, and if he saw them before he was a fan, why would he lie to me after he became one? I know. 
I'm not quite sure of the logic of that now either, but it, it seemed fair enough at the time. And I swear, a fan at a convention told me he knew someone who'd seen the Macra Terror. You could see the wheels of the car that the Macra was built over, apparently. Except, of course, the Macra was meant to be the size of a car, not played by one. But I didn't know that then, and it all seemed quite real. I was too open to suggestion to believe that the Macra rumours should not exist, and that there was actually no such thing as the Macra Terror anymore. I didn't have any reason not to believe these people, except, of course, that people lie. They look you in the eye, and they lie. So, actually, well done to them, because that's actually quite hard. With the internet, however, you don't need to look anyone in the anything, so that's really bloody easy, which would explain why hoax after hoax bombarded the internet forums in those early days. Ah, but maybe this one has an element of truth to it, I'd think, stupidly. And of course, I would check various forums every day just to get a sniff of a rumour. When I think now how I could have spent that time writing the great British novel or, I don't know, watching my kids growing up, instead of staring at a film can for Mission to the Unknown and wondering if it really did look genuine, or reading that forum post about the car boot sale where some Hartnells were definitely spotted, well, I'd probably be living off royalties and maybe able to buy my ignored children off with a hefty inheritance of more than just what they're currently in the running for, which amounts to about 20 quid, a signed photo of a Vord, and some Radio Times cuttings of things I've been in. And of course, it'd have to be the one day I wasn't perusing an internet forum that the Daleks' master plan continued its slow process of reformation and episode two popped back. And then later... Two episodes that nobody had ever run a rumour about anywhere on the internet. Galaxy 4 Part 3 and The Underwater Menace Part 2 appeared out of nowhere and I had the wonderful experience of talking to a veteran fan who dolefully told me that they were number 102 and 104 on his list of episodes that he wanted back of the 108 that were then missing. It was probably the most Doctor Who conversation I've ever had. And of course, like you... I spent several years drooling over every pronouncement about what is now known as the Omni-Rumour, fuelled by the welcome return of the web of fear and the enemy of the world, not just on the internet, but in hushed conversations in pubs where people would tell me in the weeks before the announcement that it was definitely Marco Polo in the web of fear. Someone has seen the film cans slash sales documents slash actual episodes. And a part of me still hankers for something more to be out there. And I greet every rumour with a soupçon of hope because, well, it's the hope that's the fun part, isn't it? The hope! Before realising that the episode coming back is your number 103. The hope! Before you realise it's just a piece of internet gossip. The hope! Before you realise that, hey, it's the longest we've ever gone without getting anything back. I suppose my love for the missing episodes is a bit like my love for, say, Elizabeth Sladen. I'll always love her because, well, I never met her for starters. Oh, I've had many an unrequited love in my life, but we may as well roll them all into Miss Sladen for the purposes of this illustration. Unlike the love affairs I've had that have failed, with Elizabeth Sladen, well, we never got to that point where one of us started to annoy the other, where my messiness got in the way, or she tired of my habit of getting to the train station at least 40 minutes before the train we were heading for, because, well, it's better to be safe than sorry, and for God's sake, why didn't you think to pack all that yesterday, and why are you only now looking for your bloody purse, and... 
etc., etc., etc. Had I always been able to see Marco Polo, maybe I'd find it a bit slow, whereas what I can't see is the elegant and thoughtful and the poetic. Maybe the mysterious, beguiling delegates of Mission to the Unknown and the Daleks' master plan would look like slightly shambling actors jostling for space inelegantly rather than the myriad of unknowable weirdos the still photos promise. Yeah, and I know we've got some shots of them now in episode two of Dalek's Master Plan, but uh, Mission to the Unknown is still really ground zero for delegate action, and it could be terribly disappointing. And maybe the doom-laden, religiously-themed The Massacre would just be like a very talky BBC play, and not the superbly dramatic treatise, heavy on atmosphere I imagine it to be, because I can't see it in the dark, and so it seems a lot sexier than it might in the cold light of day. Because it's the thrill of the chase, isn't it? I mean, not the thrill of the chase. The chase is very silly indeed in a lot of places and very, very clumsily directed. But actually, while we're on the chase, maybe if it was missing, in our mind's eye, Dracula's House of Horrors would be a sorely missed visit into the realm of the nightmarish and cinema's greatest horror icons, rather than the mess we are confronted with, thanks to us having the ocular proof. So maybe when the show wasn't on anymore and I could easily have sought pleasures elsewhere. Maybe it was the hope of uncovering a valuable segment from the past that kept me going as much as, no, maybe even more than the hope that the series would come back. Because we can all hope for a new manifestation of the show, but we don't have anything to go on there. But with the old stuff, we can find scraps of information, look at photos, speak to directors to get some idea of what it is that we're missing. It's like getting messages on social media from the person of our dreams who we've never actually seen. We put all our hopes and imaginings into them and conjure someone unfeasibly perfect because real life isn't intruding and ruining it with its botched camera moves, clunky sets and uncomfortably staged moments of action. Because ultimately we know from Doctor Who that it's often what you can't see that really provokes the imagination. The idea of the giant rat in the talons of Weng Chiang is much more exciting than its execution, so maybe the idea of fury from the deep is better than experiencing it. Those seaweed creatures could be this amazing, thrashing colony of devils, or it could be an uncomfortable visual effects man lamely wobbling a tentacle or two from underneath a load of bubble bath produced by the foam machine that didn't exactly make the seeds of death a nightmarish horror. And yes, when we did get those clips back, those split seconds of psychopathic suds were certainly better than I imagined. And so, well look, we just don't know. Tomb of the Cybermen though, the Holy Grail, was certainly a story that people had built up so much in their imaginations, partly down to its existing visual remnants. Beautiful photos, especially of the cyber emergence from their tombs in that amazing Ealing set, that the actual thing was only ever going to be a disappointment. People rather love it again now, but I remember that it had always been described as a very dark and atmospheric tale, so the absence of any spooky, murky sets and flickering shadows, any noticeable jump moments, and the presence of a dummy cyber controller and some very visible Kirby wires on the hoisted Toberman meant that Tomb of the Cybermen showed that grave robbing can sometimes mean uncovering something that has been buried 
for so long that, well, it might not be as pretty as it is in the pictures. So I know that the majority of these stories are never going to live up to the hype. Oh, smug mode though, I always knew the enemy of the world was underrated, so there. And that some of these lost instalments, rather than being archival gold, will probably be rather shoddy. But it doesn't matter. For every dodgy moment of the Doctor hiding from a chumbly in plain sight, or Professor Zaroff not actually having a visible octopus, or Donald Bruce being visible at the edge of the set waiting for his cue, all of which in themselves are actually better seen than not, there are moments that are unexpected, charming, or simply new. Something old, yet at the same time something new, which makes a union between this viewer and a hitherto unseen instalment of Doctor Who a blessed one. And so I haven't outgrown the excitement about the chance to see the unseeable. Because, say, a Troughton episode, even a bad one, would surprise us with the sheer inventiveness of that master character player, infusing every scene. No amount of reconstructing could, for example, have recreated the knock-knock, no answer that he does when illustrating Professor Zaroff's insanity in episode two of The Underwater Menace. Sometimes, when walking the dog, I fantasise about going to a car boot sale and there are, and here I limit myself, depending on what mood I'm in, there's no point in dreaming if you can't compromise your dreams with practical restrictions. I'm a Doctor Who fan after all. So I'd say, uh, okay, this time there's 18 film cans, Toby. Which episodes do I want them to be? Uh, but two of them have to be episodes that already exist because I've got to spoil it somehow. <laughs> I've got to have my moment of disappointment sullied, even in a fantasy. I don't know what that says about me, but I don't like it. Uh, some people I know would instantly try to complete the nearly full stories. Ice Warriors 2 and 3, 10th Planet 4, Invasion 1, with or without sound, and Invasion 4, etc. This to me is madness. We know how those stories play out, but we don't know what all of the stories look like or feel like in detail. So I'd definitely go for a smorgasbord of examples of the under or not represented stories. I don't need whole adventures. Bits and bobs of each, please. An episode of The Massacre here. Probably four. Oh, but hang on then, we don't get the Abbot, so maybe it has to be episode three. Oh, the agony of make-believe based on actuality. Uh, an instalment of fury from the deep there. Oh, and maybe some bits of the mythmakers here, there and everywhere. And to think, if we had all of the episodes... I wouldn't be able to do that. To fixate upon and study and research, not what might have been, but what emphatically was, but now isn't. Or, if it is, where is it? Who has it? And will we get it back? And that's another part of the fun. The hushed conversations about a friend of a friend who definitely knows that episode X is in the hands of person Y who won't give it back for reason Z. Oh, the injustice, the selfishness, and yet the promise that one day something will come back. Oh yes, one day. But until then, oh boy, are there tears, regrets and anxieties. The stuff of drama. But obviously, now I am older, older than poor Gary Holton ever got by some considerable margin. And I'm definitely not ready to say Auf Wiedersehen yet. I've learned to be grateful for what I have, not fretful for what I never had. Over the years, Episodes have gone from being missing to being found, from being impossible to experience to being represented by sound and then pictures and then telesnaps and then clips. The history of the show pieced together in tantalising fragments, individual morsels of joy, somehow much more exciting than 
having them dumped in front of you by the plateful. And of course, it's that sense of loss, of missed opportunity, that adds drama to the absence. But it's an absence that, experience tells us, still comes with hope. And experience also tells us that there's no more or less likelihood of one episode turning up than another, and that a seemingly lowly instalment might contain more surprises or points of interest than an undisputed classic. The Daleks don't enjoy life because they fear the unknown, but we, we relish it. We want to dive into it, to study it, to fantasise about it. Some of the most exciting moments of my life as a Doctor Who fan have come because I have been given what I once thought I'd never have, and that wouldn't have happened had the BBC not indulged in the great film inferno of 1970 whatnots. And so when I get the web of fear off my shelf, where it sits in shiny disc form next to stuff like the Dominators and the Seeds of Death, whose existence I've long since taken for granted, I have to pinch myself. I can watch The Web of Fear, the first target book I read, but a story I had come to accept was lost forever, from a season that in my experience of the show has gone from being represented by four episodes to now a whopping 22. That's still 18 missing, though. Can we have those, please? Or even just a bit from Fury from the Deep? Not to mention that it's missing an instalment that has to be recreated in both animated and reconstructed form so that fans in different subcategories of how they like to experience the lost episodes have a choice how they'll experience them. <laughs> it sounds like madness, doesn't it? But I don't know. Maybe I enjoy some of those lost stories more. Maybe I'm more fascinated in them because I've experienced the sound, but not the actual fury. And to live in hope, to get the thrill of the occasional found treasure, and to imagine, and to dream, and to research, and to have the hope and expectation. Well, that's living all right. <laughs> Indefinable Magic, Melting Icebergs, was written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. With thanks to Richard Molesworth and Charles Norton. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson, and the music for Indefinable Magic has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn. I'm grateful to the many patrons who make these podcasts possible and keep them ad-free. And those patrons include Ruben Herfindel, Stephen Moffat, Peter Burns, Chris Phone, Peter Harness, Ronald Hayden, Rob Leonard, Christopher Meredith, Richard Straw, Neil Tate, Nick Tedston, Tim Arding, Chris Arkell, David, Nigel Brumley, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Paul Cook, Richard Chalk, Happy Wedding, Richard, who got married very recently, good for you, Peter Crocker, Rob Dawson, Grant Davidson, John Deere, Chris Dunford Kelk, Paul Dunn, Jason Gorman, Siobhan Galichon, Chris Hyam, Ian Key, Joe Llewellyn, Ian K. McLaughlin, Gavin McLean, The Missing Episodes Doctor Who Podcast, 
Nathan Martin, Rick Moran, Graham Knott, Adam Parker, Barry Platt, Risto Matti-Sarillo, Frank Shales and David Trainier. Would you like to join that list of names? In which case you can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock. You get bonus releases, early material and exclusive access to various bits and bobs uh, like interviews that I've done or uh, your own podcast. Far too much information which doesn't go out to anybody else bar those who get access to the patron page. Uh, it starts from as little as £3 a month and you can get a 10% discount even on that if you join for a year. There are things to lure you up to the higher tiers, but most things are available at the lowest level. Uh, if you can't commit to a monthly thing, but occasionally want to uh, show your appreciation in a financial manner, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock uh, and pay as much as or as little as you like at any time. And there's no commitment there, but that means you don't get any of the bonus stuff. Um, or you can do what is absolutely free and go to iTunes, Podbean, wherever you like, wherever you get your podcasts from and give these releases five stars. That really does help. And if you could leave a few lines of review as well, that would be very, very kind. Unfortunately, um, on iTunes, these were released um, in, in the wrong manner. They weren't broken up into seasons. So I had to really explore the inner workings uh, to work out what I'd done wrong. And that meant I happened upon the bit that says ratings and reviews, which I tend to sort of try and avoid apart from, you know, getting the, the general uh, the general spectrum. And and it, and it, and it led me to discover that um, I could do with some help in Australia. Thanks to someone who's taken a gin me. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, my my rating could do with some boosting. Uh, if, so if you're based in Australia and have iTunes, if you could go and give these five stars and some say some nice things, that would help where I've taken a bit of a battering. Thank you very much. Sorry to ask, but uh, I know that I'll just leave it there. Anyway, so yes, Australian ballast is what I need. Thank you very much. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydock and these podcasts have their own feed at Haydock Podcasts and you can visit my comedy club at Excess Malarkey on Twitter, but it's also on twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. There's an archive of stuff there. We're, we're trying to do regular shows online, but it's coming harder and harder. But we do have the live show uh, at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club every Tuesday. Um, and the online stuff is still an archive at twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. And I'm looking for ideas to put more things on that channel. Um, maybe some Doctor Who related stuff that just relies on me because the comedy stuff needs needs other people. But um, I might need a bit of inspiration and uh, a little more competence. But let's see what happens. That ended up being quite a long one. I actually even cut some bits out of that. Um, I should have maybe written it as a two-parter. I looked at cutting it in half, but it, it just didn't seem natural. It just seemed like... Uh, would have seemed like one of those Colin Baker episodes, uh, the season 22 episodes when they were shown in America, where they just arbitrarily just put a cliffhanger somewhere bad. So um, uh, so it doesn't do m me any help because it means that, you know, one release is, is, is an hour's worth of material, but it still counts as one release. But there we go. It is what it is. I hope it wasn't too long. It's a pet subject. I, I had far more. Uh, I could have said, but uh, I decided I needed to stop talking. Um, but it's a it's a, an endlessly fascinating 
story, the story of the missing episodes, and um, and of those soundtracks as well, and uh, how everything has sort of come back. I, I feel lucky in a way. Um, as I say, that's the, the the whole point of the thing, that uh, you know those episodes missing and coming back is in a way far more exciting uh, than the, the the than if they'd just all been there in the first place. But uh, it's been a long time since we had some excitement. So if you are listening and you have um, Marco Polo episode seven, sorry, Assassin at Peking, you won't know what I'm talking about if I say Marco Polo episode seven. Uh, but yeah, if you <laughs> if you have a missing episode, it's highly unlikely that anyone listening to this has got a missing episode that uh, if they hadn't been inclined to give it back before now will be or that was completely unaware that there were missing episodes of Doctor Who. But nonetheless, we put the word out everywhere just in case, don't we? Um, but it's a, it's about time we got one back, isn't it? <laughs> 